The second church addressed in the book of Revelation is the church in Smyrna. And this church is warned against coming persecution, but comforted with the promise that those who conquer with Christ, they will not be harmed by the second death. So thank you for joining us. We are Kingdom of the Lagos, and we're here to have a great time talking about the book of Revelation. We hope that you out there, too, are having a good time wherever you're at in life. And as we have this conversation, we are going to be looking at these churches, and there's always a bit of mystery that comes with the book of Revelation. But today, we're going to be looking at what's going on in the second church, how can we apply that to our life? And again, the overarching question we'll have is looking at these seven churches is how do we make sure we're doing things that are good and not doing the things that are bad? When the churches are warned against things, how can we look at those warnings and make sure that we're not about to go into the same traps and snares and make sure that we are truly living as Christ wants us to live? So, thank you for joining us. We are Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. And I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and I'm not alone here in Cord Purgatory, our studio. There are a few others. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. Pastor Anthony Alegria. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And we thank you for joining us. We're here to have a good time as Nazarenes. Isn't that, isn't that right? Shouldn't we always be having a good time together? Yes, whenever we I just get like together? a good time as Nazarenes. As Nazarenes. Well, even if someone is not a member of the Church of the Nazarene, they're more than welcome to. Well, we do have a pretty uh, strict code of conduct. So as Nazarenes, you do have to sort of qualify our good times. You know, we say that we have a strict code of conduct. I want to see it. I know. We've I never it. enforced it. Yeah, I, I want to see it. I, it may have been enforced in a time before my lifetime, but I actually think we would do well to to start enforcing things that we haven't been enforcing. Ooh, Ooh. Uh, no. Th- a discussion little, for another day. An, uh, yeah, throw a little hot pepper out there for people. Um, Next podcast but, series. Yeah. But for what we're talking about today, let's go ahead to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2 today. That's where we were last week. And there's a few churches here, so we'll be there again. So today, Anthony, would you read for us from chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 8 through 11? And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first, and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. All right. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for reading that. So we come to this text, and we find this is filled with a lot of cryptic things. And you come to it, and you're like, well, goodness, this is such apocalyptic literature. Who knows what this is talking about? And it can seem a little bit overwhelming. There's a lot of place... There's a lot of room in this this scripture for, for mystery. There's a place here around this church where we look at it with fantasy, some curiosity. But today we hope to bring some resolution. Now, we're not heretics. Um, so we're not here to explain away all the mystery. Usually that's like a, a hallmark of heresy is when they come to explain away the mystery or something like that. We're not here to do that today. But we are here to hope to give some guidance and some resolution about some things which are pretty solid within what we know of the Church of Smyrna. So, beginning our discussion, I want to open up with a little bit of history. So, again, this is a program of critical thinking and adventure. We're going to do some critical thinking today, and we're going to make that adventure all the way to 2,000 years ago to the Church of Smyrna, or 
we're honest, really more about 1900 years ago because this all takes place about the year 100 AD, so about 60 years or so after Jesus has gone to the cross and resurrected and ascended. So making this adventure, we find John here on the island of Patmos. Jesus has come to reveal through John to a church called Smyrna. Now some serious questions that we might have about this is who is John? And why is John concerned with this church of Smyrna? So let's actually ask these questions a little bit and then we'll move into the actual content of this scripture. So to the question of who is John? I think everyone here kind of is of the same school of thought and we're going to be working from the premise that the John that we find in the book of Revelation is John the Apostle. He's sometimes referred to as John the Evangelist because he writes the Gospel of John. He's the one who records that. And then he is also writing the epistles and this book of Revelation. So you might have him as John the Revelator, John the Apostle, um, John, whatever name may be associated with him. We're going to look at this as all being one John. Now, there are those who argue against that. Personally, I'm of the persuasion that John writes it all. Um, does anybody here in the studio want to give me an, an alternative viewpoint why we might push back against it all being the same, John? Well, I know for specifically this being the, the revelation, there are those that would kind of separate John the apostle who wrote the gospel and maybe even the letter separate from John the revelator. Some would separate all of those. Um, and some would say that maybe even though John may have inspired those works, uh, maybe it was probably one of his students that actually wrote it or there was someone else named John. So there's a lot of different theories out there. And the main reason, especially for when we come to the book of Revelation, probably uh, why those may say that it was written by someone else other than the apostle John that we see in the Gospels and, and then who wrote the epistles would be because this is probably written around the year 90 AD, like you said, 60 years afterwards. And so John would be a very old man at this point. Plus, um, he was, uh, history tells us or stories tell us about John uh, outside of the Bible that he was uh, they attempted to kill him as a martyr. He's the only of the original through twelve, boiling through boiling. Yes, yes. He is the only uh, only apostle or original twelve disciple that will not die a martyr's death. He will then be exiled to Patmos. So he's not lived the most cushiony life. Um, he was also a, a, a fisherman, so he did not have lots of education. And so there's theories saying that probably at the and Revelation does seem to have some slightly different grammatical. Uh, tendencies than the epistles or the gospel. And so it looks like either John now, because he was very old, may have had some changes in life that led to those grammatical differences, uh, or it may have been a student or at the very least a scribe uh, that was writing these things down as John was retelling them. So there's a lot of different things that are happening in this book that it's not impossible to think that someone else wrote However, it's in our Bible because it comes under the authorship of the Apostle John. Uh, so it definitely doesn't have anything contradictory to John's specific perspective or perception or, and perspective of theology. Uh, but it is um, slightly different than the rest. And it is different also literarily. So yeah. we have to understand all that when we come to it. And, and again, I'm of the school of thought that it is the same John. And I think pretty much all of us here are. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, so we're all of the same school of thought that the, it's the same John. Um, there, I just put all of our, our names on that stake, and <laughs> anyone who, who wants to come at us, they can. But I also would like to say this, to the, to the point that there are different styles of writing, so you look at John in the evangelist role as the gospel. I don't know about you all. I, I don't write the same style sermons mm -hmm. I did six years ago. Um, I, I don't write the same when I was in college. Anthony's been in college a few years. 
Anthony, do you write the same way now than you did when you started? No. I was told uh, that my proofs were pretty good, but they were a little rude. So <laughs> I've tried to change that. Hmm. That's good. You should always listen to your professors, especially when you have to have those professors for multiple times yeah. in multiple and, classes. <laughs> and to the point of our writing does change over time. I don't know about y'all, but I'm a morning person. I could get up at 6 a.m. and write something better than I'm going to do it at 10 p.m. I know other people may be able to decide about it. Yeah, exact opposite. <laughs> well, and too, it, it, you know, with the later date of 90, and some scholars will go later than that, but the yeah, older we get, the, a lot of our, our um, you know, our, our writing skills change much as we get older as well. All right, so so that's who John is. John, he's this guy, and we have a picture of John. I don't know if Anthony flashed that for you or not. hope he did. Um, but we've got another image we want to bring up and, and show for you. And that is a map. So if Anthony will, will bring that up for, for everyone to see. We look at all of these churches that the book of Revelation reaches out to to give a message to. And it's interesting because they all fit within a region that we might call Asia Minor. And that is not a place which is unusual for John to be concerned about. In fact, John is the apostle who goes up to do his ministry here in this Asia Minor territory. So John is not a bishop. A lot of times the, there's a connection where the apostles, they handed their ministry off to people after them and they took on the name bishop. And there's this historical distinction between those who were eyewitness to Jesus, the original apostles, and then those who are sort of the second or third, fourth generation of the church. They're serving in a similar role, but they weren't those eyewitnesses themselves. So John, he's actually one of the eyewitnesses there to, to Christ. He, he dealt with a lot of this firsthand. And now he is leading a lot of these churches. He's sort of taking a role where he pastors a lot throughout this area. He goes around, does a lot of ministry in this area. So the church Smyrna is actually one very important to John. It's not like something way out of the blue, like someone showing up at your house, you're living in Kentucky, and they say, hey, this is going on in a, in a church in Brazil or something like that, where you're, you're not really familiar with it. Maybe you've heard of it or something like that, but it's, it's not off the wall. Um, it's something which John would be very familiar with. It's like if someone came to you and said, hey, you know, the church five miles from you, this is what's going on there. So Smyrna is one which is very significant in the life of John. And even John's, one of his successors, Polycarp, will he's the bishop of Smyrna, and that's a whole other story. Really important one, though. So that's where we're at with Asia Minor. So. Amanda, when we see here in the book of Revelation, this church in Smyrna being addressed, and we want to be able to put ourselves in the shoes, well, we need to be able to figure out whose shoes we're putting them in. Mm -hmm. So who really are these Christians in the church of Smyrna? And talk to me a, a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, and this, some of this that I'm about to say really applies to all of the, the churches that will be mentioned in this part of Revelation. As you said, they're all in Asia Minor. Uh, John is kind of their leader. Uh in a you know in a very ecumenical sense and so he's writing to them after this he's received this revelation from jesus and they are going to have for each of them different warnings uh, Smyrna actually i think it and one other church are going to be the only ones that don't have anything against them anything um bad to say about the churches uh smyrna will luck out in that kind of department um uh, but John is writing to not only geographically a very different congregation uh, than maybe some of our other epistles or writings in, in the New Testament, but also through time, we're going to see a drastic change. So like we said, this is written probably in 90 or closer to 100 AD. Uh, this puts us 60 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Paul's letters um, are probably one of the first written works that we have uh, that are now in our New Testament. And so 
when we read Paul's letters and even some of the other epistles, and then later on we get to the Gospels, um, and I know in our in our Bible, canonically, the Gospels are first, but I'm talking about in the order they were written. Um, they're going to be writing to really this first generation of the church. So the 12 disciples and Paul, who will kind of get put in that group as well, even though he did not walk with Jesus in Jesus's ministry. But these original 12 are going to be the ones that are like... Uh, Dylan said the apostles and they're going to start this message and it's going to spread and it's going to be brand new to a lot of people and so that's Paul's writing is written to new churches baby churches uh, churches who are still trying to figure out some pretty basic theological um, trends and ideas uh, John's going to be writing almost to maybe the second or third generation so these are more established churches churches that are going to have a more of a foundation and a structure and even a little bit of a history and he's also writing to these churches after the fall of the temple in Jerusalem, which is going to be significant later on, especially to this church in Smyrna when we talk about the Jews. And there's going to, we're going to discuss a little bit about who are the Jews and who aren't the Jews and things like that, both uh, ethnically and religiously and some other elements. Um, but this all takes place, we kind of have to put it historically. So these are people who are probably very familiar with the message of Christ. They're familiar with uh, the ministry and the stories of the, the birth and the life and the ministry of Christ. Um, but they're still going to face some difficulties. And because of where they are historically, they're going to start f uh, facing some uh, strict persecution, not from the, the Jews directly, like you would in Paul's writings, but mostly from the Roman Empire and the quote-unquote pagans. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. So recap all that real quick. <laughs> Sorry. Instead of being the baby churches, which are mm -hmm. early on, they haven't really heard the Gospels in their written form. Or Again, a lot of these people couldn't read around, but... The Gospels aren't circulating. They don't have Bibles like we have. They don't have a well-established church structure. The temple hasn't fallen yet. They're all baby new churches at the first generation. By the time you get the book of Revelation and what John's writing to, they're they're down the road. So these churches, you know, a lot can happen in 30, 40 years. Like, really, a lot can happen in that time frame. And, you know, generations come in. People have children. People can have grandchildren in that time. And all this stuff has happened then they've already, they've been established. The churches are a little bit more rooted. Things like the Didache are starting to pop up, which says this is what a church service looks like. This is what a sacrament is. The Gospels, they're starting to circulate around. So they're much more established where we're at now. And as Amanda said, this persecution from Rome is starting to shape up. And what we find here is that as this church here in Smyrna, they're getting a message. And we look at ourselves and we look at them and say, okay, I know how long my church has been around. I know what it looks like to have my, my grandparents, those generations that came before me, the things they've handed me down. But now I'm in this context, and I really want to understand now what this church is doing well. And Anthony, I know you did some, some work looking into the translations on stuff, and there's that line in the scripture that says, I know your poverty even though you're rich. You know, if we're critical thinkers, we're stepping into this church, we're trying to figure out what's going on here. We figured out the backstory of the church. But now this question of, I know your poverty, even though you're rich, that's a pretty big confusing thing to read, is it not? Anthony, what, what have you learned about this in, in your research into the language? Well, it wasn't very much. And <clears throat> even though it could be a legitimate translation in some instances, but there are other English versions which agree with the point of view that I take whenever I looked at the Greek uh, manuscripts, which it say, but you are rich. And so um, that's what it literally says. Sometimes, even though everyone's walk can be uh, substituted there, but it should, 
a very close literal translation will read, I know your poverty, but you are rich. And so um, I don't know necessarily that it's in recognition of something that they're doing right, but it's definitely recognition of what of the work of Christ in them and uh, the fruits of the spirit that they have. And so that would be that. All right, Pastor Manor, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think um, also the language of poverty and richness, we have to, in, in the ancient world, it's going to have a lot more nuance than it does today. Strictly speaking for us in, in uh, for us now in English, uh, it generally just refers to finances. However, in the ancient world, poverty and richness um, could do with anything about uh, finances, it could be with your dependence on others. So you could be considered poor even if you live in a nice house because your nice house is only dependent upon the fact maybe of your husband or your father or something like that. Uh, but also it could probably mean spiritual poverty and richness. And so uh, John is probably doing a little bit of a play on words here. It says, I know your poverty in a financial sense, but you are rich. And so to agree with Anthony, the probably a better translation is but you're rich versus even though you're rich because he's drawing a contrast that your wealth, uh, your sustenance comes from something different uh, than uh, your resources. Yeah, this is basic Christian logics. This is Christian instincts that what makes one wealthy, what is good in life is not just having nice things. That what is good in life really are the things which come of God and, and walking the adventure of holiness, moving down the the providentially designed pathway that God has set before us, moving down this this avenue of holiness. So we look at this and we say, okay, so this is one thing that has been said to them, but also there's clear preparation going on in this text. And one of the things that we know about Smyrna as well as a city is that it is designated in the, the Roman Empire as Neokoros. And now most of us don't know what Neokoros is. If, if someone rolls in the room and says, hey, is your town Neokoros? Like most of us will be like, mm, yeah, I have no idea what that means, but I can't answer that. But Neokoros is actually a significant word when we look at the ancient world. And it is a term which means that this city, it was designated an official center for religion. So while people look around our world and they say, Nashville, it is the music city. So if you live in Nashville, who knows what that means? But Nashville's the music city. Um, yeah, everybody laughs about that. You expect to just be walking around in cowboy boots and country music everywhere. Not really the case, but there's a little of that downtown. A little but it's of mostly that. just people who it's mostly tourists. Want to yeah, show mostly out. mostly touristy stuff. Um, but anyways, cities get their reputations. This one is Neokoros, and for practical purposes, it means it's a official center of Roman religion. Now, in ancient Rome, religion and politics were very close together, and in this town, they were especially close together. Ancient Rome had a policy called the Pax Deorum. And again, yeah, that's another ancient word. If somebody says, how's the Pax Deorum working out for you? Most of us don't know what that means. I get that. But it is an ancient term, which means the peace of the gods. And so there was an official policy in the Roman Empire that was called the peace of the gods. And what this meant is that the Roman government officially sanctioned and endorsed this sort of religion where all the gods that were within their empire need to be worshipped. If Rome is going to have peace, then all the gods under its purview have to be worshipped. So whether it be Zeus or someone like Athena, Apollo, all these gods, they need to be worshipped. But also, if they conquered a land and those people had a god, well, then that god needs to be appeased too because if there's division or warring between the gods, then Rome's going to fall. Well, the Jews, they had an arrangement with Rome where they're like, look, if you are kind of nice to us, 
you don't bother us, we'll go to the temple and we'll pray for you and we will do things on behalf of Rome. Not going to get into all that, but there was sort of a soft endorsement where they allowed Judaism to exist. Now, this book of Revelation takes place after the fall of the temple. So Rome kind of came down and chastised the Jews and kind of went away and all right, Pastor Mike's giving a face over there. It was a little bit more than a mild <laughs> chastising. It was pretty brutal what happened. They tell us that they run out of uh, trees and um, to to make crosses out of by uh, crucifying uh, the Jews. Yeah, it was, as well as Christians. But yeah, it it was it was pretty bad. However, I would call that more than a little chastising. It, it is more than a little chastising. But as far as the re- the religion and faith of Judaism go. Um, the Jews are still able to, to practice, but there was something different about Christianity. And this is the distinction I, I want to make here, is that the Christians, they were accused of atheism. And Pastor Mike, I'll let you elaborate a little bit on that since... Well, you know, uh, it's ironic that, you know, a religious people or a people in a relationship with Christ Jesus being called Christian um, very much... Um, we're called atheist. Well, we're called atheists, yeah. yeah. And so the reason being is that they, um, you know, they were loyal to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and by doing so, they they were not um, syncretizing or blending religions. So in a city with an acropolis and all kinds of temples, uh, you would see temples of Zeus, Apollo, um, Aphrodite, Diana. Um, I'm trying to think of some others that were there. Uh, Asclepius. Asclepius. And so there's all of these, you know, different temples. Yep. Well, for for uh, Christians who refuse to worship um, any other god, they're looked at as, you know, uh, an atheist. And, and that. that is because Rome did not officially recognize Jesus as a god. Well, right? I mean, it was ridiculous because he was a man. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they... And that's, honestly, that's a... I'm not saying I agree with this critique, but that's a Greek, that's a critique that people make even to this day yeah. that it is ridiculous to worship a man. And so uh, reconciling the God man is a complicated task and most people don't bother doing it. And well, so I'll, it actually makes sense to call yeah. Christians atheists. Yeah. And and I'll just add on top of, of Anthony. I know Anthony was saying it's not surprising people do this day. Man, people do the same sins. <laughs> like, well, welcome to to a world that um, has sin in the equation. People are going to repeat sins for. Oh, and and don't forget though that that even some of their rulers and kings, though, however, were um, a, you know worship like God. Oh, and sure, affi- yeah, affiliated yeah. as 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 that. Uh, however, you know, Christ is the king, and to say that is really to denounce Caesar. And uh, what's fascinating is Rome true, basically says you can have whatever God you want, as long as the government approves it. So they've kind of got their whole system where they're kind of in a sense saying Rome is God because Rome is the one who gets to pick and choose who is God. Um, Think about that one for a little while. Chew on that. So that's what we have going on here. So again, in Smyrna, you've got all these temples, you've got all this stuff, but the Christians, their faith is not permitted by the government. Therefore, they're atheists. So just chew on that for a little bit. Um, another line that we find in here that's interesting as we take apart this scripture and we learn from it and try to construct something meaningful in our lives. Anthony, it has this line that says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. And again, this is where some mystery comes in. This is fascinating. It's like they say they're Jews, they're not. What sort of like weird cult do they got in? Are they coming in and they, they pull off their mask and stuff? 
What is going on really with this statement, Anthony? And I know you, you also had some interesting translation discoveries on this as well. Just that um, the word slander, the actual Greek word for it, and the only reason I'm going to say it is because it sounds almost just like it, is a blasphemia, um, and that's blasphemy. Uh, and so I think that would actually probably be a better translation because it's more true to the actual word. And we have that word in English, so yeah. it makes sense to me to keep it. Um, but I do think it might change the situation a little bit with this statement. I know the blasphemy on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not. And maybe that will contribute to how um, Amanda and Mike address the next question. Yeah, and what we have found so far is that Smyrna is in a highly religious place. Mm -hmm. Now, Christians are not the majority here by any stretch of the imagination. They're not even approved by Rome to be there. They're accused of being atheist. And the government, over the next several years, hundreds of years, they're going to start cracking up more and more on, on the church. They're going to be cracking down on them, sitting them to the amphitheater, killing them, all over these what are dumb accusations of atheism, but they make sense by the standards of Rome. And as Anthony said, when you, you look at it, from the non-believing standpoint, it, it does kind of make sense to call them atheists, but whatever. We find that there's this church here, a lot of temples everywhere, they're being persecuted, they've kind of endured, but then there's also some internal division. There's a lot of spiritual warfare going on here. So to the second half of that statement, where it says there are some who say they are Jews, but they are not, Pastor Amanda, could you give us some insight to what's really being said by that? So um, at this point, again, in kind of the history, uh, the temple is going, the Jewish temple is going to be destroyed about 70 AD. Um, and at that point, Judaism and its leaders really have to start making a hard line. Up to that point, Christianity was considered a sect. So a part, um, a kind of different persuasion or had a slightly different perspective. And it depended because you do have Paul uh, pretty quickly. Or Could we Saul. say like it's a different denomination within Judaism? It, it may be more on the fringes. They would almost be like what the um, Mormons are to Christians. I think. Okay, okay. Uh, so kind of similar, but not quite mainline accepted. Okay. Um, and so, because you see Paul or Saul uh, later to become Paul pretty quickly persecuting some churches, but in the eyes of the Roman government, it's going to be a part of Judaism. Now, after the fall, though, of the temple, the people of of the faith of, of, of Judaism will have to say, what does it mean to be Jewish? Because now we no longer have a temple to give us identity, which leads also to some interesting things about idolatry, but we won't go there. Um, so what can give us identity? And they say, we're going to be the people of the book. And so they figure out what it means to be the people of the book. And that's going to mean just the Torah, uh, the prophets and the writings, and they're going to exclude everything that mentions this weird carpenter named Jesus. And so this is going to push Christians outside of the synagogue. And this is going to create some animosities, obviously. And so what we see, especially doing some little research in the history of Smyrna, is probably in order for the Jewish people to get kind of back on the good side with their Roman officials, they're going to tell the Roman officials, hey, there's some weirdos practicing. Actually, they're not just going to be considered atheists. They're also cannibals and practice incest because they call each other's brothers and sister and they have this love feast where they eat uh, the body and blood of their God. And so really weird things are happening. And I think sometimes we lose that after 2000 years of practicing Christianity. We lose how weird our religion is and how wonderfully weird it is. But anyways, yeah. the Jews are going to kind of oust them a little bit. And we ought to be careful with this, of course. And it, reading some commentators on this, like they said it, if they said it once, they said it a hundred times. This is not an excuse uh, to be anti-Semitic. Because John is Jewish. Jesus 
is Jewish. Yeah. Um, Paul and, and many, all, well, all of our, except for uh, Priscilla, who we believe may have written Hebrews, uh, she may have been more Gentile, but most of our New Testament is written by Jews. Um, and so this is not saying Jews are bad, but what it's saying is there's this growing animosity between the people of God. Yeah. And the Jews maybe not have a t- intentionally meant for there to be persecution about against the Christians, but nevertheless, their actions against Christians uh, had caused some great division and persecution against these believers because now they have, now that they're not considered Jewish, they have to make uh, sacrifices or incense or sign a paper that says they're going to follow this um, the Rome. And many oh, sure, of them sure. will refuse to do this, of course, because Caesar is not Lord, Christ is Lord. And so this is, we're going to have, and basically what, what, John is saying, Jesus is saying through John and the Jews are saying they're Jews, but they're not. It's basically Jesus is saying they say they're from the people of God, but they're being mean to their brothers and sisters. So that's not acting like the people of God. Yeah. So this really isn't a race thing. Right. Everybody wants to do that. Pastor Mike, talk to us a little bit about this. Why this is not a a race thing in that, you know, I think sometimes you can um, identify a Jew ethnically. But really, I think what's going on here is more of the action and how you are following the Torah. Uh, but more so than that would be how Jesus, you know, interprets and fulfills the law and the prophets, where we love, um, you know, our neighbors, ourselves, and love the Lord your God with all your, you know, your heart and soul and and uh, strength. Here we we see that. Uh, also, there's the the reference to the synagogue of uh, Satan, where Satan really wants to do anything to keep you from worshiping the true God. Yeah. And regardless of where the the you know whether they're Christian Jews or just Jews that haven't come to the revelation of Jesus Christ as Lord and King yet, um, there is that denial and that interruption that keeps true worship from taking place. Yeah, and one of the things that's fascinating about this is you brought up the synagogue of Satan. There are so many temples in in this town, and you, presumably there, there are synagogues there too. I don't know how many synagogues might be there, but the, there's a Jewish presence. And the only reference we get here to another temple or anything of that sort is this language of synagogue of Satan. And this text is kind of setting up this really dichotomy of saying there's the church doing the work which has been commissioned to you by Christ or you can go out and kind of the synagogue of Satan is there to tempt you as well. It kind of looks at the the spiritual warfare that's going on here. I know I've been talking about that a lot but spiritual warfare it doesn't always look like someone coming in with a snake wearing a you know a brown robe and they're about to go chop someone's head off. Though this is ancient Rome with the ancient pagan religion. So I'm, I'm not saying that's out of the question. I mean, the, people did a lot of stuff back there. But really the spiritual warfare that we see going on here is an inter-Jewish conflict where you've got Absolutely. some Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the begotten son of God who came to die for them, that he did die for them, and then was resurrected and ascended to sit there in heaven. But now you've got some other Jews who don't believe that, and they've kind of started outing one another. And so that's really where we're at with this church. You've got a church. There's a lot of temples and stuff around you, things to tempt you. There are some people who want to go and indulge in that, who say, yeah, let's synchronize with it. Like, I like going to that that temple over there. You know, they do some some fun things on Monday. But then the Christians are like, no, we're going to endure. We're going to do this. And even though we get accused of ridiculous stuff, we're going to hold together. And persecution is coming. 
Pastor and, Mike. And I'd just like to say, you know, the, the word, you know, when we hear synagogue of Satan, that is very, very harsh language. Yeah. But one thing we've learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls and the, the Essene community in Qumran is that often uh, this type of language is addressed to those who are most like us. So yeah. it's not yeah. odd in apocalyptic literature for, you know, the very, you know, uh, uh, persecution that they're experiencing is not just on the outside, but it is of those who are part of and, the people of yeah, God. Yeah, and even the fact that it's Jews outing other Jews because they believe in Jesus, that really shows you spiritual warfare begins at home. Oh, yes. That, like, I, I, I hate to have to point that out. It's not something waiting for you on the, the opposite side of the earth, but spiritual warfare starts at home, and it, and it can be so devastating. And what we find here is as this whole passage starts to conclude, we get this idea of those who are conquerors with Christ, they will not be harmed by the second death. And let's talk about that just a little bit. Amanda, what are your thoughts whenever you hear the language of second death? All right, well, second death, obviously, we have there's a first death that's happening. And so especially in the context of, of Christians who are facing persecution, which which for many of them will end in being executed, uh, whether it is by beheading or sent to the amphitheater with lions and wild beasts and gladiators and such forth, uh, there is a promise given to them that though they may come uh, succumb to the first death, that they may not have to face the second death. And that is, especially in this context, probably referring um, to the final judgment. So when the kingdom comes in its fullness and there is this time in which uh, we either go unto life or unto permanent death, um, really, it is separation from God. Yeah. Right? So, and this is what hell is. And we, especially in this book of Revelation, we, we like to have uh, these fantastical imageries of, of heaven and hell and beast and spiritual warfare. Um, and and to, to Dylan's point earlier, that it, it starts at home, these things are, are not abstract. They, they're actually quite mundane. And what, what God is, is, or Jesus is saying, what God is saying through John the Revelator is that the second death is eternal separation from God. And that can actually even start in this life. If you are separated from the love of God, from the will of God, from the hope of God, uh, you are experiencing a living death. Yeah. And so um, John is is encouraging. This is actually an encouragement to the church in Smyrna, is if you are faithful to the end, even in death, faithful unto death, uh, that you will be given a crown of life. You will conquer um, some very strong, powerful language in this passage. Victorious language. Yes, and you will you will be an overcomer, um, and you will not have to worry. <laughs> and purposefully add that er overcomer because we don't have words like winner, champion. <laughs> but anyways, we won't go off on that tangent. But yeah, strong, victorious language in this text, and therefore you will not have to worry about being eternally separated from God. Yeah. You will not have to have the fear of eternal death because right. you have conquered even in the midst of the first death. Sure, and, and let's look at some scriptural justification for this. Um, Anthony, would you read from the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 13 through 15? And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, very good. So as we, we come away from this scripture and we look to, we, we've learned so much history about this today, <laughs> or I hope so. Um, we, we realize there are some very big takeaways from this, and there's three that I want to emphasize. 
The first being don't synchronize, no matter how much the world wants you to. The world wants you to adopt things around. In fact, a lot of the synchronization that happens is possibly from other people in the house of God that are not believing in orthodoxy and they want to, you to synchronize something that's not truly of the gospel. These people here in the church in Smyrna, they were being taken in and it's a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar saying, you know, if you'll bow down and worship when I play the orchestra, all will be forgiven. A lot of these people were brought in before a judge and the judge, he lays out some little ingredients for them. It's like, hey, if you'll do it, you're free. If you'll burn the incense, you're free to go. If you'll pay homage to the cause that I want you to, go over there and, and just give a little money to my household gods over here. You know, a lot of times that's what would happen with these Christians. They would say, do this little act and you can go do whatever you want. We'll be done here. Court will be over. Um, we see this sort of stuff happen in the modern day and age. This is, this is what the world wants us to do. It's what others in the church who are not living as they should want us to do. It's what the adversity and spiritual warfare wants us to do. Anthony? Um, that is the literal litmus test of a lot of the persecutors. Pliny the yep. Younger, when he was writing back to the emperor after diagnosing the situation in uh, Israel and uh, the situation of the church and the conflict within the Jews, he told them that the way to test whether or not we should kill them for being Christians is whether or not they will make a sacrifice. Yep. Anyone who will make a sacrifice to another god is not a Christian, yep. which I think is hilarious because that is a criteria set up by someone who is seeking to persecute the church. And it's also a lot of the criteria that the church itself is like, yeah, do not deny Christ. Yep. He will deny you. Like and, that's yeah, a pretty this, good marker. And this reminds us about my second point is that spiritual warfare can happen really, really close to you. Right, like it right. doesn't have to be a head spinning around it a lot of times starts in your home. It starts like people who you know and love. And again, a lot of these Jewish Christians are probably related to the non-Christian Jews. And the spiritual warfare, it can happen really close to home. So that's the second point. And the third point that I've got is that persecution may come for you and even kill you. But if Christ is with you and Christ is conquering and you are there walking with him on the way of life, you're not going to be harmed by the second death. And even as death comes for you, it really doesn't have victory over you because you will be victorious in the second death. When Christ comes to have that final judgment, you will be victorious. So that's the three big takeaways we've got. Well, I'd just like to add, you know, with that, I guess, is that, you know, these bodies, uh, they're not designed to last forever. We're going to die unless Christ comes again and then we'll be transformed um, in the twinkling of an eye, as it says. But, you know, God doesn't always deliver us from adversity, but rather God often delivers us in and through adversity. In other words, when, when God pursues us or you, uh, and we or you turn to follow Christ, then, and accept, you know, God and, uh, and Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then your troubles are really not over. But according to this, they really are about to intensify. Yeah. But we are called to be a, remain faithful um, to the very end, sure. which is an eternal life, and, uh, and there is a heaven. Um, and even though this talks about judgment and then the second death, but it, it says it's not going to hurt you. Yeah, and, and to, to your point a little bit, God is a merciful God. He looked at his fallen creation 
Again, I actually think the original design for humanity was not one that included death. Fallen nature came in and happened to that. Now our bodies, they, they cannot endure this. But as God looks at his creation, he sees the larger scope. And he sees that, yeah, you might have adversity now that may even kill you. But in the end, in the larger scope of things, which is from the, the view of God, there is going to be ultimate victory. And, and what we find when we, we look at this is that God chose to redeem fallen creation rather than to destroy it. And just as Christ came to endure the fallen creation and everything that's broken and sinful and awful in it, and in many participated in advanced sin, but he came to endure and suffer through fallen creation, we too should endure and, and suffer through that because that is the, the pathway to that final victory. So going ahead and wrapping up today's program, this church in Smyrna, they were not the babiest of baby Christians. They had a few generations under their belt. They had already started to develop what it meant to be the church as far as services, structures, things like that. They're starting to get solidified. They're used to hearing the, the gospel in a more formal setting, and you're, you're getting some more solid um, written-down renditions of that. Again, people don't have Bibles, but they're starting to circulate letters and things. And now they're in a place with a lot of other temples. And the Roman government wants them to do things. They want them to go out, burn the incense, do this stuff, you know, bake these ingredients, do this, do that. But the church is, is saying, no, we're not going to do that. So they're being persecuted. And the, the wisdom of Christ comes to them and says, I love you. I had victory in death. You will have victory too. And that's really where they're at. And we can learn from that, you know. Those three things I had then, don't synchronize when the world wants you to. Spiritual warfare, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen close to home. You might have somebody spinning their head around, but probably not. Um, persecution may come for you, and it may kill you, but you won't be harmed in the second death. So any final thoughts before we close, y'all? We enjoy this? Well, I think just something to pick out real quick, because it, it, it does change how they refer to, to God and each one that he's talking to the churches. And it, it is powerful that the way that... Uh, that, uh, that John just decides to describe Christ in this passage is the first and the last, the one who was dead and has now come to life. This is this is the hope for for them, oh, and sure. I think that's Absolutely. what speaking Wait, to what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, this is this is the 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 cusp or the almost the thesis statement to this church um, is look to who Christ is and yep. how Christ has overcome, and now you can do the same and yeah. more. <laughs> Amen. Thank you for joining us. We are a Christian program of, King, of critical thinking and adventure. This is Kingdom of the Logos. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Facebook, subscribe to our channel on YouTube. You can download our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, CastBox, a lot of other places. And if you'd like to make a monetary donation, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdom of the Logos. If you have anything you want us to talk about or if you want to talk to one of us, please reach out to us. Make sure you're part of a local fellowship. And with that, God love you and have a blessed day.